How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 126. You sound a little less raspy than the last few I weeks. I know. Jake, I'm great. feeling way more energy than I have in the last couple of weeks, I think. Uh, That's excellent been, news. I'm well over my sickness hump. Um, yeah. Don't ever call it a hump again. Don't ever do that. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm on the back end of my prac time. Oh, so, good. two weeks away from the school holidays. Yeah. You can put your water on, on the desk. It, oh, it, looks, it looks closer than, than the box over there. Mm. Yeah, see? I'm within arm's reach. Yeah, I just didn't want to spill anything on all your beautifully expensive tech. Oh, thank you. Um, yes. I mean, that's, that. that's my box full of camera gears. So that, we'll get... that, that might be more expensive. That, than that's this. a valid point. We are yeah. getting to one of my favourite times of year, Jake. <laughs> it is almost tax return time. Oh, that's which one of my favourite times too. when you start to eye off the little mid-year prezies you want to give yourself. Uh, speaking of prezies, it was your birthday in the last week. It was my birthday. I turned 24. So I'm ageing on this podcast. We're, we're all... Growing up with each other. Exactly. On this podcast. Happy birthday for during the week. Thank you. I got a few cool things, actually, for... I actually wrote it down, because I wanted to mention it. I got some Criterion Collection for my birthday, mm-hmm. which I was very excited about. I was glad to know that my family understand the love, the cost of shipping, and a lot of them were Region B, which I was, I was surprised. I didn't think you could get a Region B version of the Before Trilogy, and yet your boy has one now. Which and it works. Really awesome. I haven't tested it yet, but it does. It's definitely a different... Um, the cover and that's all the same, but it has region B on the back and A. I'm not going to lie, Jake. So, I might have to borrow that from I knew, you. I knew you were going to ask that. Um, <laughs> now that you've said this to me. That's true. Um, I will test it before I do that. Of course. Just in case I'm being played. Because um, the version I bought borrowed from Steven was region A only. So I have to whip out the old Blu-ray multi-region player. Yeah. Um, if it is... Mm. Then I'm definitely think it's only fair that I watch oh, those three that's films. Fair. That's fair enough. Um, I know we're not planning on doing Linklater quite yet on our director's corners. Yeah, we've got a couple of plans. We've for got the a few future. more decades to get through before we start. Absolutely, doing that again, but, but yeah. I feel like if there was a film, it would have to be one of those films. Mm. I would assume yeah. that we'd have to talk I mean, about before sunset. Or I mean, you put up. Um, oh, what was the film you put Dazed up? Dazed and Confused. For? Dazed and Confused is a good one as a director's corner. I think so. so. I think that predates Before Sunset. Yeah. Uh, before Sunrise, sorry, I should say. They get a little confusing. The yeah. Titles, the which one's which? They get, they get yeah, a little that's bit, it. but that's okay. No. Some of the other ones I got were Come and See, which is a 1985 film I'm very excited to see. I've been wanting it forever. Um, Anatomy of a Murder, which I didn't realize existed until a few days ago. So it's a bit of a coinky-dink that I got the criterion for that. Um, and it's directed by Otto Priminger, who... You may know was a uh, was uh, portrayed in Trumbo with Brian Cranston's case. Mm-hmm. One of the directors that gets a, a written film from him. It's not um it's not Autonomy for a Murder though. I don't think that was written by Dalton Trumbo, but that's okay. Um, I also got uh you would like this thing. I got Bill Burr's Why Do I Do This on DVD and Another Round on DVD. Fantastic. So, that's very yes. Exciting. I know Another Round did come out relatively recently. Yeah, about a month well, ago maybe. Yes, it's um, been out for a little while. And... Meaning to get it. Yes, yeah, so that was my. Film hole for my birthday, which was very nice. I'm very happy. Well, we can jump straight into a bit of film trivia mm. to cap us off. We uh, can. For the uh, film of the week, Dog Day Afternoon, of course. Of course. The Zeke. Sydney Lumet 1975 picture. Yeah. What's, your, what's your trivia, Zeke? What, okay. what, what you got for me? This the one little, I actually found interesting because... Jake. Um, I, just reading through a bit of the trivia, this one 
um, this might be news to you. Uh, the yeah. real bank robber, John, uh, I'm going to say this wrong, Witowski, I, I don't know how to say his I think the J is silent. Witowski? Witowski? Witowski. Let's go like with Witowski. I'm sorry we got that wrong, but mm. it's, uh, to me, it looks, yeah, I can't read that. Um, had had watched The Godfather to get ideas the day he robbed the Chase Manhattan Bank. Oh, really? Which obviously is actually a little bit of fun trivia because obviously the central character who's playing the person that the the yeah. film's based off is Al Pacino, who yeah. was, as everyone knows, the central character of The Godfather. That's pretty insane because there is a bit more full circle trivia that is very spoilery, so I'm not going to talk about it until our actual discussion mm-hmm. of Film of the Week. Um, but it is interesting, and Al Pacino, and of course the director, Sidley Lament, we've already mentioned both of them, they were very hands-on with this film, and mm-hmm. uh, some of the trivia, uh, you know about this, because we did sit down and watch some, you know, little behind-the-scenes stuff. Yeah, a couple of video essays yeah. by a YouTuber, Cinema Tyler. Cinema Tyler. Yeah, he was ratching through all these facts that I had surprised for you, so I guess the audience is just going to have to be the only one surprised in this scenario. <laughs> Um, but I was going to phrase it as them both being very hands-on in the fact that Al Pacino um, was part of the casting process and hired many um, of his co-stars from previous off-Broadway plays, which, for those who don't know, off-Broadway plays are about 100 to 499 seaters. Mm-hmm. So it's not Broadway per se, but it's sort of just a step below yeah, it. You it's, know? It, you know, it's particularly at the turn of the 60s and the early 70s, a lot of those actors that have now comes synonymous legend did come from off-way broad off-broadway mm. productions yeah and there's an off off-broadway for even less than 100 seats i did mm. not know that was a thing yeah but um <laughs> it's, a, it's Pacino, very lazy like, titling like, for status like it was pacino <laughs> streisand um dustin hoffman they're all off yeah. off-broadway stars nice that took their got their breaks in respective different films obviously yeah so my, my guess is that it was the majority of the hostages that came from the off-broadway stuff and mm-hmm. and i love it because you know the assumption is that they wouldn't have done a lot of films so it's kind of it's kind of cool of al pacino yeah, to, a lot to of them was that. their first film yeah which is very cool and of course Sidney lament uh, sydney lament jesus uh showed off his on hands deck work by uh, personally doing a lot of the mixing of the artificial sweat uh, that you see on the characters from tricks he learnt while doing 12 Angry Men. And that was also a very sweaty men forehead movie. Which is, <laughs> was another one of our Countdown Through the Decades yeah, retrospective. Yeah, last, last year, for the 50s. So um, Another full circle moment right there. Yeah, and we'll be talking a little bit about that later in the show. Mm. But my question is, Zeke, is the film on the 1,100 film poster behind you. Oh, absolutely. It is, correct. Yeah. <laughs> That's a given, I think. That's yeah. A... But I, I, I'll keep banging this drum. I thought Green Mile was a given and it wasn't on there. So. That's true. So it's it, very true. It's not, I don't think it's always a given, but well, yes, Jake, of course. I know you haven't so. said it on air, but off mm-hmm. air, you did say that you did struggle to watch anything in the last week bar the film of the week. Yeah, no, I'm sort of... Um, I think you had a moment like this... I think last year as well, where yes. you went a few weeks without watching really much of anything. I think we just get I busy. Think you, know? It, you know, it's funny because um, the work, like I, I'm working just as intensely, but I, I do find when I'm working on, you know, we t- tied into the career section of our show. Right. When we're working on creative projects, I find sometimes you do suffer a bit of creative fatigue um, in terms of, it can be tough sometimes to, especially if you're working on a film, mm. um, 
to go home and then watch other films at that in that period of time. Right, when you're in the thick of it. Oh yeah. Well, when I was you're just busy, you know. And typically, if you get home and you got to shoot the next day, you got to prep for that next shoot. Mm-hmm. And of course, it depends on the role you're on. But it's no, it's exhausting. Whereas, and it's like I'm not in any shoots at the moment. But I think because I'm doing several different jobs that are all sort of varying schedules. It, it is exhausting mm-hmm. to find time to watch stuff. And, like, I was so amped after our Blade Runner discussion last week to watch 2049. I just haven't... I just, I just haven't... Sitting on my dad, I just don't have time to watch. It's it's tough, and it sucks, because Absolutely. I feel pressure for this podcast to watch stuff, to be able to talk about it. The only thing I can talk about is the literally the one episode of the UK office that I got in <laughs> earlier today. And I was like, oh, yeah, the UK, they, they utilize J&L cuts... Mm. More than a more than the US version does. That that is literally what I have for the audience today. The UK version has more J and L cuts. Good for you. <laughs> the songs begin, or the the end credits song begins before the credits start. So yippee. <laughs> yippee. Well, I'm gonna uh, well assist a little bit with you here. Um, I've managed to catch five films, including the film of the week. Mm, um, so uh, very nice. That's a relatively strong week. Um, for me, I'm just gonna have a quick gaze and look at my diary. Um, your diary on, on the old letterbox. Um, it's not a physical yeah, so diary. Starting with um, I could group these together. I guess I'll group the two rom coms that I saw together. Okay. Um, which was uh, for the first time ever, I watched Ten Things I Hate About You. Oof, big uh, nab right there. And I think that's a big tick off the blacklist. Um, obviously, this film is probably one of the, I would say, in ladder has become quite a good uh, theoretical deconstructive film of, of that particular genre, 10 Things I Hate About You. I know mm-hmm. a lot of people cite it as quite a... Uh, thought. It was kind of like last year. I had never seen Mean Girls, and I finally got to watch Mean Girls. Right. I think um, I watched Mean Girls for the first time too last year. So I did enjoy it. I actually really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed uh, performances from for very young Joseph Gordon-Levitt, mm. and, and obviously Heath Ledger is incredibly charming in it. Um, wasn't like the problem with these sort of films now, and I think Mean Girl. I actually enjoyed Mean Girls a little bit more than I enjoyed this. Um, it, it's just like everything. It's these films are now. I think from a screen theory point of view, put on quite high pedestals so sometimes i i come in with really high expectations right. and i met my expectations are normally met to being slightly below what i what i thought i was going to get um this film's not bad at all and i did actually enjoy it um but i, I don't see myself revisiting it constantly um anytime soon you know right um, the other film, and this plays. Well, in- I was, I was going to say before we move on, yeah. like, did you never watch it in high school, or no? They never played it. So I've no, seen the just- first thirty minutes of this film like four times, and so- never finish it because he- the class would end. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, and, that, and that's very fair. Um, my high school experience, I, I was lit- the closest thing that we got to any sort of semblance of rom com was we watched Romeo and Juliet, the Baz Luhrmann. Oh, yeah. film, which I hate. That film with a with a burning passion. Um, um, I'm not a big Baz Luhrmann fan though Uh, hot take Um, and yeah we just never got around to watching it Um, it actually it's drawn on me like I've only just started watching Two Hands how few Heath Ledger films I had actually seen right bar obviously Dark Knight and um, 
and you really do and see. You've seen um, Brokeback Mountain, though, haven't you? I've only seen scenes of it. Oh, okay. Um, see, you did you did the cosplay of it. Yeah, I could have. S- I did. That you you're you're seen correct. The movie at least, yeah. Nah, nah. Well, to be fair, I just did a cowboy, and that was just the. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. But, yeah, no, I just haven't seen too many of his performances, unfortunately. And, and uh, he's very charming in this film. And it's a, it's a really strong sort of rom-com film. Mm. Um, it's just not one that I would, you know, revisit, I think, again, for for the for the foreseeable future, I think. Uh, right. Okay. I like continually churning through... However, I, although my expectation was high and was met with this film, the preceding rom-com that I watched a little later in the week was a recommendation of one of my colleagues at work. Um, I went in with pretty rock-bottom low expectations for this film. Um, so it's called Holiday. Um, oh, I've heard horrible things about Holiday. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? <laughs> I'm going to... So my thing is, because it is sitting on a, a reason... It's 2.5 on Leatherbox, box. Right? Okay. And I walked out with the three star. Now, I think for me, one thing, first five minutes, I'm really concerned. It's the visuals were very like, oh, this is like a Netflix hallmark sort of film. Um, I actually think given what looks to be some severe budget constrictions, I think they try um, to actually, uh, from a cinematic point of view, they actually do some okay things with the camera. Um, and I just found myself laughing quite a bit, um, like, and actually being reasonably entertained by it. It's a very, um, popcorn rom-com. It's not trying to be as thought-provoking as something like 10 Things I Hate About You that's got a little bit more in terms of its layers and, and it's, it's the same thing with like 500 Days of Summer and stuff like that, which have a bit more, you know, artistic consideration to them. Um, this one's just trying to be a straightforward romantic comedy. Right. Um, and I actually thought the jokes were pretty funny. Um, maybe I'm just a sucker for these kinds of films sometimes. <laughs> like, I think maybe I I lean favorably on them. I really like the two leads. I think they're funny. Um, I think they have good chemistry. Um, and I thought the writing was, you know, it's contrived at sometimes, sure, but... I guess it's what you get out of this. And this is one of the problems with rating scores, I think. Right. Like scoring films. I know we've talked about it both on the show and off the show. It can be tough sometimes to score stuff because it's like if you're entertained but you know it's not a very uh, cinematically comprehensive piece. Mm. Whereas then you watch something that is a cinematic comprehensive, like it's quite cinematically comprehensive, but it just doesn't grip you or it's just like there are problems with it, then... And then you arrive at the same score for both. You're like, well, but one of these films I know for a fact has more to say than the other film. I just enjoyed watching this film right. because of the context in which I watched that. And that's why whenever we revisit films that we had seen before on the show, you make a conscientious effort to change your score if you've changed your viewing experience. Yeah, I do change my score every now and then because sometimes I know I'm more harsh. I tend to like films more the second time I watch them. Um, mm-hmm. And every now and then, they're often like when I rewatched. It's not a great example, but um, when I rewatched Black Mirror Smithereens a couple of weeks ago, I actively went to change my score, and then so I gave it a three stars. I was like, oh no, I still think that's correct. I might actually go back and give it a lower score since it is a complete ripoff of Dog Day Afternoon mm-hmm. after watching Dog Day Afternoon. But uh, I do, yeah, like I do consciously go back and change my score and 
because yeah, scores scores kind of suck, and that's why I started writing reviews at the start mm. of the year. I was like, it's just it's easier to just explain. Like when I gave Quiet Place Part Two a three star review, and I was like, I think it does a lot of excellent things, but I think there's a lot of little issues here and there mm. with the script and this and that. I well, have to explain those things to people. Maybe that's where the benefit is of, of stuff like video essays or, or video mm. reviews or podcast reviews, where you get to sort of at least um, the the problem is that obviously with our show, the only the 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 structure of the show, otherwise it would go on forever, mm. is the only one that really gets put under the microscope is the film of the week. Like, we do talk about... Wow, so we consciously make an effort to talk about it more than five or ten minutes. Of course. So, um, so that it, by the end of those conversations, I'm kind of validated in whatever score I've assigned. But the right. other ones, it's like, obviously, I only give two, three minutes to films that were watched during the week. And... and mm. um, which isn't quite enough time to fully dissect why did I enjoy this film so much? Well, and then you got to bring in the whole what's your out of context, your watching experience. Yeah, exactly. And I've said it about this show is even the film of the week, like the context is the, the whether it's the first time we see it, the second time we see it, how did we see it? Yeah. And what when are we uploading it? In the case of, of today, it's the 14th of June, that we're watching this film from 1975. We're going to have a different opinion on it than people who saw it the day it released absolutely you know, many many years ago yeah um, so it's it's important to p- let people know that context yeah and it, it comes back to you know i'm like multiple films i'm watching that i'm like halfway through right now and it's like i'll just come home from work and i'll be yeah. like to be honest that's too heavy a subject matter for me to watch right now right. i'm i'm drained i want to watch a film like something like holiday where it's like I'm not going... If I doze off, I'm not going to hate myself for dozing off. Or if I... (laughs) I If I miss something... If I miss five minutes of the film because I've zoned out or something like that, I'm not going to lose the plot or I'm not going to, like... And and maybe that's why that viewing experience at that particular point in time was more enjoyable because it was, Mm. you know, a 13-hour day and you're watching this tight 90-minute film where it makes you laugh, you know, every now and again, you know? Yeah, and 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 I will say as well, like, I've seen films that if I'd seen them with someone else or had watched them by myself as opposed to seeing it with a bunch of other people who actively clicked it on Netflix specifically to make fun of it, I've seen films where it's like, I would like this more if there weren't people around me yelling. And, like, we've had that experience as well. The one I'm thinking of has nothing to do with, like, you, me, and Jack watching... Um, what's the film? Oh, no, it wasn't Jack. It was you, me, and... Um, and Morgan watching Swiped. That was a fun one we had. But it's like... And I'm not talking about Swiped. I think I would still hate it just as much. Oh, it's a terrible film. Yeah. But there are other films that I have watched with people who purposely clicked on it just to talk crap about it. Where I'm trying to watch and at least be objective. Yeah. And, and I feel like if you were to watch Holiday with a bunch of people who specifically wanted to talk crap about it or make fun of it as you're watching it, you might have gave it a lower score simply because of that. Absolutely. So it's interesting, and I think, I think it's true. I think it's good that you're giving it a fair, honest review, watching it just by yourself, yeah. without the influence of other people. Yeah, it's no, nice. ex- no, exactly. Um, so the other two films to talk about, um, sort of still tying in with the comedy side, mm. I, I did watch the, um, the Full Monty um, for the first oh, time. Okay. Uh, visit that. That's on Star right now. On Disney Plus, and um, I actually, yeah, I quite enjoyed this film. It's a bit of a feel-good comedy sort of, kind of a, a type of film like this 
would come out in Australia and you could quite easily see this sort of sense of humour. It's giving me a bit of a snatch vibe right now. Um, that would be probably no. more the cast. Um, okay. The way that they go about story and structure and stuff, it could have come out of Australia. Like, this has obviously come out of, uh, I think it's in the middle of England, so it's a British film. But mm. the same sort of um, very simple plot, um, it all builds to this show in which a bunch of out of work unemployed blue collar workers decide mm. to strip off to make money right okay um and they don't do it until the end of the show that's why there's a zip on the word monty in the poster yeah and <laughs> it ends up being a um it's just a fun film and another one of those easy films very easy to watch um the full monty is pretty well liked too um it definitely has quite a like i said it, it sort of has that simple humor like mm-hmm. The main characters are all relatively unintelligent, sort of very straightforward kind of people. Right. Um, which is reflected in quite a number of uh, Australian-esque humours, uh, like, you know, your Cracker Jacks and your your Backyard Crickets, your Backyard Ashes and your <laughs> The Castle. Like, the, I, and which is, I love those kinds of movies. I love um, simple movies like that. Um, right. And then the other film I watched for the first time ever... Um, a bit of a, a bit of a sleeper hit in my opinion. Uh, mm. I watched The Devil Wears Prada for the first time. Oh, look at that! Now, a, what do you mean by sleep for you personally, or I would say generally? And I'm going to dive really? into it. Yeah, okay. Just, okay. Just stay with me, Jake. Stay with me. All right. Um, so the reason why I think this film isn't probably talked about as much as it should be is. Mainly because of the cast. I think the cast, like, particularly, um, you know, they're obviously, most of them are now synonymous with other films. Um, and then for some of them, it was one of their first mainstream sort of roles. And, you know, it's got a very early Emily Blunt in there. Right. Um, it's got a pretty early on Anne Hathaway, too, actually. I mean, it's 2006, so that's relatively early in I both mean, their she careers. she was still famous at this point. I'm looking at now. She did Princess Diaries in, was it the 90s? Oh, 2001. Okay, that's not... T- oh, that's five years before. I know what you mean. Like, she's done bigger roles since Devil Wears Prada. Yeah. I, but mean, I wouldn't consider this, like, her breakout. I wouldn't say it's a breakout for her. I'd say for Emily no. Blunt, it's pretty good. Like, she's done. she did other things, but I hadn't heard of anything that she'd done before this film. Mm. And I know she's in supporting. Um, I don't know. It just was an incredibly intelligent film that's actually really well written. The only critiques I had from it was probably, I think, the last five, ten minutes is incredibly rushed. Okay. Um, wraps things up, really. But it's uh, it's got artistic flair. It's motivated. It explores. It's one of those things comes back to one of my kind of my golden rules of what I like about films. Like, you know, I got recommended this film and, and I got said, ah, oh, you're probably not going to like this film. And it's like, well, at the end of the day, for me, it's about the exploration of a world that I've no clue about. Right. And... The film doesn't do stuff like one of my problems with like things like miscongeniality is it has that inflection of it chooses to go humour first over actually exploring the world that these women have gone into. This film focuses on the importance of fashion in, in social culture. It, uh, Meryl Streep gets multiple monologues in which she gets to explicitly talk about the importance of fashion to justify why this um, you know, phenomenon is so important um and and this part of the world and part of human culture is is relevant and it mm-hmm. really 
Whereas, you know, Anne Hathaway's character, at least at the, yeah, up until the end of the first act, is she's like, oh, it's just clothes. Like, clothes don't mean anything. And then, like, like what we wear isn't that new. Like, what does it matter about fashion or trends? Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, Meryl Streep's character kind of justifies that. And, you know, she's very much a, an iron lady sort of character. She's a, She's always put business first. And only in the very latter parts of it do we start to see sort of the cracks um, appear and... I just think the ending, yeah, the ending's a little rushed. Um, does lose a little steam in that last act, in my opinion. But overall, it really enjoyed the film. Okay, well, that's good. Yeah. I, I'm not surprised that it's got a pretty good reception on here. And and but that was my thing is like people know this movie, The Devil Wears Prada. It's oh, not, it's not when like I say when I say sleeper. Oh, right. well, I I think it not. I wouldn't even call it underrated. It's just a film that has now kind of just been lost in the, the the shuffle of all of the... I mean, it's got Stanley Tucci in it, and mm. it's got Emily Blunt in it, and it's got Anne Hathaway. And, and you think of the context of 2006, you know, at this point, Meryl Streep's already a household name. Mm. And this film probably, you know, it's, the way I see it is is this film won't be talked about, like, you know, when the sad day comes when, like, Meryl Streep passes away. They won't play this film. Or like they might really. I feel like they might. You reckon? I feel like they would, and I don't. I don't want to say. I want to put a bet on it because that's an awful thing to put a bet on. <laughs> but I, just... I, I really don't understand where that's coming from because, like, I've I've never seen Devil Wears Prada, but I've I've known about it forever. Mm-hmm. You know, even the fact that it came in two thousand six is like I swear it came out even earlier than that. I feel like I've known about this yeah. movie longer than that. I think for me, okay. So the one thing that I I think this film really. It, this film probably was marketed at, and um, you know, you'd be willing to correct me if I'm wrong. It's marketed at that sort of like the the middle aged demographic. Like I think the that middle aged woman demographic. It wasn't a, um, and I think that's one of the things that I want to actually counter and and point out. I don't think this film is like your uh, your eat pray loves or your okay. your miscongenialities or your it's complicated which has you know, another Meryl Streep film you know the, those films that were marketed at that age demographic and they, you know, each every different type of film is marked at different demographics yeah this, you know, film, this is better than this, a lot of the other ones oh, in this that category this film is an exploration into the fashion world hmm. you don't have to be a middle aged woman to want to explore the fashion world this film is exploring a world that no matter you know guy girl whatever age you are you get something out of this film because it's exploring a part of the world that you might not really have the faintest idea about i I didn't know anything about this stuff so it's like you know but it intrigued me and it was interesting and there was some serious artistic flair and some great editing and some good music and some compelling performances and um and the only thing that kind of let me down was yeah the the last 15 minutes kind of just everything goes up to about 300 percent and (laughs) Oh, no. um, they're like, oh, let's wrap this up, and and a couple of things happen with particularly Anne Hathaway's character that are a little confusing and contrived, and um, she sort of gets everything to work out nicely for her in the end, and um, not necessarily sure how you know, you know, if her character warranted that conclusion. Right. I think. Okay, that's fair enough. Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad you liked it overall. Yeah. Yeah, of course, <laughs> not the ending. Sweet. Well, that's. I'm guessing that's it on your end of the. Yeah, yeah. I was gonna yeah, say man. table, the uh, the turntables. I don't know what. How I'm the turntables? Yeah, exactly. Um, well, in terms of career updates, I don't really have anything um, that's wholly relevant. Maybe next week there'll be some stuff I'm ready to talk mm-hmm. about, but 
It's one of those weeks. All, all work and, and no no fun of the exciting announcement, sadly. Of course. But that, that's okay. Um, so with that, are we happy to Absolutely, move my into friend. the film of the week? Oh, my goodness. It is time to move exciting. into our film of the week. It is the latest installment in our countdown through the decades retrospective. We are moving into the 1970s. But, Jake, who won the poll and what are we watching? Um, I had to... <laughs> to think about because I'm like who won the poll again right um yeah so dog day afternoon of course won the vote against Annie Hall it was uh what was it 20 to 16 so it was close it was tight it was very close um so let's talk about Sidley Laments dog day afternoon just keep talking like nothing was wrong nobody will get over there okay I can't do it sonny I'm going to let him out. Let him out! We're moving right along, folks. We're going to get this thing done in half an hour. We just got to fly. Oh, shit. Here. I'm a Catholic, and I don't want to hurt anybody, you understand? That's all there is. What are you talking about? They picked it up this afternoon. There's only $1,100. She's telling you the truth. I can't believe it. There's no money here. What are you doing in there? We got you completely by the balls. You don't believe me? I'm looking you right in the eye. I'm telling you, there's a way out of this thing. We got the hostages. We make the demands. We get a helicopter here. It lands on the roof and takes us to a jet. some people in there uh, kind of hungry. Can you okay. get some food for them? No problem. What do you want? What I owe you for this? No, no, no. I paid for that. No, I got it. I got it. A man decides to rob a local Brooklyn bank to pay for his lover's operation, but he's forced to take hostages after the heist doesn't go as planned. Hmm. That sounds like a slippery situation. That it does. I don't know where slippery came from, but... <laughs> so, um, yeah, this is our second Sidley Lament film. And like you mentioned, we did 12 Angry Men in the last Decades Countdown Challenge, so give him a lot of love, which I love. I love that we're giving him lots of love. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> so this is, of course, based on a true story. The film makes it very evident that it's based on a true story. It's at the start, and of course it ends with its little where-are-they-now closing credits thing, but it's based on a true story from a newspaper article. Um, so for those who are wondering, well, they're making a Zola based on a bunch of tweets. It's like, no, oh, they've always taken movie rights from weird places. Um, of course, detailing the August 1972 bank robbery from, uh, as we mentioned earlier, John Walterwitz, we believe that's how you pronounce it, that's and that's uh, Salator Natoli, Natoli, and uh, who, of course, that's his actual real name, mm-hmm. as well as the character's name, and they changed John to... To Sonny, which I, I'm convinced is a Godfather reference. It might not be, but mm-hmm. who knows? Um, yeah, and so this was the first time I saw... I think first time we've both seen this movie. And I I thought it was excellent. I thought it was really great. I thought the screenplay especially nailed it in terms of the sort of in-your-head scope of the escalating situation, the bank robbery, but then also how it slowly explores other topics in terms of... Um, how uh, Sonny becomes almost a bit of an icon 
to the crowd and how he starts getting a bit of a movement rising when mm-hmm. he goes Attica, Attica. We'll get into that soon. Um, but then, it, like I said, it sort of deals with both those wider implications as well as just a straightforward here is the plot beats of a bank robbery. I think it nails both of those elements, and I think it's and I think it's an excellent film, Zeke. Hey, I do too. I was just reading a little bit about um, Pacino's counterpart, um, which I, I was quite interested in, which is uh, John Cazaley. Oh, yeah. As, as Sal. Um, as Sal. He doesn't get a lot of talking in this movie. No, no. Turns out he passed away in 1978. So, um, wow. Just after his role in The Deer Hunter. Yeah, and he was actually Meryl Streep's romantic partner at the time. Oh, well, there you go. There you go. Speak, well, Meryl Streep early in the show. Speaking of some extra trivia facts for you mm. there, I didn't realize he died so soon after this movie was made. Yeah, lung cancer apparently. Yeah, wow. That's so, a shame. But he had a heck of a seventies. He was in The Godfather. He was in The Godfather mm. Part Two. He's in this. He had a big seventies. Uh, big seventies. <laughs> um, but yeah, look, honestly, Lumet, like we talked about a lot on the 12 Angry Men podcast about how exquisite that film was. And, and this film does continue a lot of um, the things that we really liked. It does have some quite long takes in it also. Um, not obviously as, as, as floaty as, as sometimes the 12 Angry Men one, which was mm. uh, at points in time was takes going for forever um uh there's there's only you know this film's got a little bit more of a traditional hollywood uh uh, format in terms of its its cinematography however it's incredibly naturalistic um and but it also adheres to predominantly one location i mean up until Mm. i think the last 20 minutes of the film it's solely based in and around the bank or the street rather yeah yeah the, the, the street which is funny because yeah he he does 12 angry men in a tiny little room and it's like he didn't really get much bigger <laughs> in terms of the room space i mean oh, there's, he used there's every a lot square of, foot of that room there's a lot of production there's value a in the toilet film, in the, the corner and um <laughs> like you used, forget the toilet <laughs> used every square foot of it and i think that this has definitely done a very similar thing i think but i mean predominantly uh, we're actually mostly in the lobby of the bank um mm. We have a couple occasions where, the, the, you know, like um, Sonny goes around the back with the bank manager or they, they use the vault for a little bit. Um, but most of the film is set, um, particularly for our protagonist, in that in that bank building. Mm. And um, it's a really, yeah, it's a really excellent film. It, it creates tension. It, you, you feel every minute in the film. As, as this situation's playing out and, and it's interesting how compelling uh, these characters are, um, especially now with a, a, a 21st century reading of the same 75 film. Um, for what this film was discussing and, and creating in, in a protagonist character at the, at the context of that time was progressive at that time, but obviously has just as much, if not more, to say now with our putting our 2021 glasses on. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I said to you off the show, I was, having not seen this before, I had absolutely no idea about the exploration of the LGBTQ community and especially of the Leon character who um, does become a transsexual woman and is based on a real woman 
as well and that whole aspect of the story is also taken from real life mm-hmm. and from the real bank robbery in 1972 i was surprised by it mostly because first off when i hear about dog day afternoon i don't really hear about that aspect of the story which is almost in itself very interesting that it's not the first like the headline part mm. of this film is what it's actually about but the fact it was made in 1975 and the fact that al pacino is portraying this gay character this well be, i guess becoming openly gay within the events of the film maybe like within his circle but like it being televised mm. to the world uh that kind of it's it was really a pleasant surprise. Yeah. I was like, oh, this film goes and, really deep in this. And, I mean, obviously this film's set in 72. Yes. Um, only a couple of years after the actual event happened. Mm. And 72 is a very interesting time if you look at, you know, Western world, particularly, you know, in this case, America. I mean, you've got a lot of the... They're just sort of moving away from the, the post-Vietnam era where a lot of society was very angry at at militarized mm. uh, and government bodies like the police force. Well, um, I mean, they literally reference Attica in this film, a police mm. riot that would have taken place a year before, well, before 72. Mm. And it is very anti-authoritarian. It is like, look at how the media and the and the crowds around the cops, they turn on a dime. It's all about the intrigue of this event. But then it's like, mm. no, we, Sonny is like our not a political figure, but he's like a hero in some mm-hmm. case. He's a hero to the gay community, or at least how the media says that there's well, members now a fan of it. And he's a hero to the people who hate cops, who hate the oppressiveness that's going on. Mm-hmm. So I love that attack was all of that. Yeah. It's, it's a, and I, I think that the deliberate pursuit for grounded realism over, over dramatization is what has made this film have a longstanding societal point to make. Mm. Um, the fact that this film didn't take, um, and I'm going to cite, you know, a film such as like Trial of Chicago 7, where oh, yeah. although there are moments that are really strong in that film, there are also moments of, of just classic standard film tropic behavior, you know, in terms mm. of its, its, its script and its pacing. And yeah, it's expertly paced. And from a, you know, from a academic theoretical point of view, that script is 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 a really strong sound script it's tight it makes sense everything's motivated and and considered and you wouldn't expect anything less mm. but, but it's almost too clean in a lot it's, of ways and that's where exactly it. yeah. it's too clean it, it, it became too at points it was so like okay well we now know what the next bit of this like bit is because it's it was a formula it felt like a script formula whereas you know, Lumet has given, uh, you know, we watched a bit of behind the scenes stuff where he talks like there was, a, you know, natural ad-libbing and, and cast selections allowed characters to be more naturalistic with mm. one another and more genuine and real. And, you know, if you're diving into the people that the bank tellers who we spend a majority of the film with, you know, there's eight or nine uh, ladies and one gentleman who we spend a majority of, uh, they make up the whole ensemble and, you know, they're all associated with, with Al Pacino from off-Broadway productions and uh, they were told and instructed and directed to act like themselves in mm. this situation. They, their names are different, but the person is the same. Yeah, well, like you said, it all goes towards this naturalistic collection of performances. And you know what, Trial is a perfect example. I know that's a courtroom drama, but you're right, it's based on a real event, not too far away from the events of what happened here. It's only like maybe two or three years. Yeah. I think late 60s versus early 70s in this film. Um, but you're right, one feels more contrived and controlled. And, you know, you have the judge, like, 
banging his uh, what what's it called? The yeah, little, the, the anvil. The anvil. Oh, not anvil. The, no, the um, not mallet. What's it called? The mullet? No, mullet. That's a that's a hair. The belt. The belt. The oh my god, am I forgetting? This I'm thing? forgetting it now. Too. His little hammer finny. We all yeah. know what we're talking about. Like he's banning that thing, or comically and angrily, ah, everyone, court order, uh, order in the court. Is it a pummel? No, it's not a pummel. A gavel. It's a gavel. gavel. That's, that's it. it. It's a gavel. Um, when he, yeah, and it's like it's so. And uh, Aaron Sorkin did that. He clearly did it on purpose. It clearly ends on a very cheesy sort of note. But for here, you're right. It's it's way more about the naturalism of it, and I think it's more about. And there's it doesn't end on this note because again, I thought, like I said, I made the joke of Black Mirror Smithereens being sort of a ripoff of this. Because it is. It's about the rising situation. I think Die Hard does this pretty well as well in terms of a situation arising, and now the cops are coming in. Now these elements mm. are coming in. The media is coming in, and that all kind of gets in the way and that's exactly how Black Mirror Smithereens mm-hmm. does it too is that once the media gets involved it starts actually tampering with the operation tam- tampering with the hostage situation I think it I think what a really one of the really important distinctions that this um, film has is the first part where the first um, prior to any sort of police intervention the when we watch the bank robbery um, mm. play out it's incredibly realistic and the film does keep that underlying realism the whole way through but that central part when particularly the character of Sonny is starting to kind of grandstand a little bit with the the, the, the crowd that is now gathered around the, yeah. the bank you know he's he's revving them up he's like you said he's, he's shouting out Attica to get them more revved up and anti-authoritarian he's taking yeah. the money that he's quote unquote you know he's stolen and yeah, he's yeah, throwing he's it into away. the crowd um, because he's kind of getting caught up into the and they, the mm. only reason that and the only reason the crowd doesn't ever completely turn on him but starts to cool on him is when they find out that he's a homosexual man and only that only leads to a divisive response, you know. Well, they you know um, they're they're cracking jokes and and wooing when he's patting down people as they're coming in and out. Yeah. Like it, it does become that side of it, but then. You know, there's a subsection of people that are still holding up a sign saying "We love you, Sonny." That yeah. happens at the very end of this entire yeah. ordeal. So, I I don't disagree that it's created division amongst it. I think, but it, w- it's interesting to see how it affects the crowd learning that he's gay. One of the one of the best things I think is is the use of time in this to change mm. the tone and the feeling. Um, when he's re- when he's at his peak popularity with the crowd, um, and he's you know throwing money into the crowd and stuff. It, it's the it's the middle of the afternoon at that point, and um, it almost feels like you know in the first act it's very real and the and the last act's really real and the only point where it starts to get a little um, uh, like I said uh, probably a little bit more um, not uh, magical's the wrong word but a bit more like surreal yeah a little bit more surreal is is in that central part when he's almost like the character is is thinking he's doing um more uh more like a social you know more social change than what he actually is i think um i'm trying to like pinpoint exactly what i'm trying to get at here um i think it's a bit like it's a good example is when he's throwing the money into the crowd mm. and he's throwing it and then it cuts to a shot of of showering money and and stuff right like that. yeah i didn't notice i um, i think that's more of a because I get what you mean. Is that 
tr- playing tricks on mm. us, the audience, that the the crowd is reacting to this small pile of money more than they actually are in the film world. Is that him? Is that Sonny interpreting the people falling in love with him? He's giving them money. I think it's just simply the way they shot it. Yeah. It was hard for them to throw the money and for it, it to spread it's out that of everything. way. It's, it's that. It's him I take talking. it literally. I do. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's a mixture of stuff like that and then them all talking about like they're all going to just hop onto a plane and, and go to this foreign country and, and all of the women are on board with it. And it, Romanticized is probably the best way. Right. That middle, that central bit, that afternoon bit is the most romanticized part of it. And I like... And like I said, like I think this film goes for incredible realism and and such like that. But it is the moment when he has the most power and he feels the most powerful. So a lot of the stuff that he feels like he's doing, he can't go wrong at this point. And he starts to really develop a genuine belief. It's not just him spitballing ideas of how to get out of it. He believes they're going to get a plane. They're going to get out. And only does the reality come in that they're probably not going to get out of this one alive until the lights go out and night really comes in and that conversation, particularly with Leon um, on the phone is happening Mm. um, is the moment when it it feels like reality is coming back to them. I, I think you're right. Especially you can argue that as well. Like the, the switch from day to night and then that whole situation. I just think that Sonny as a character is very, is painfully optimistic. And I think that's the best way to phrase it in the sense that, yeah, he does believe that they're optimistic or clueless. No, I think he's optimistic. He's not clueless. See, this is my argument, is that a lot of people talk about Sonny and Sal as very incompetent. I just, I think they're very competent. Like, yeah, obviously burning the the the, the ledger or the, the little registry booklet in the bin was kind of silly. The, the, the motive behind it wasn't that silly. Like, oh, we're going to get rid of this trace. But up until that point, like, yes, yeah, Sonny, he admits that he, he's worked in a bank before. He can tell the difference between... Like a key that's going to set up an alarm, and then a regular key that opens the gate, the 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 vault. I suppose all mm. all the unmarked bills and the waiting that's going to set up an alarm. He knows about all of these things, even when the the kid that goes with them bails in the very first second. He deal. He. I mean, yeah, it's a bit of a mess up, but that he deals with it in a pretty decent way. I guess. I mean, but it's it's like things like they. So didn't, I don't think they, it's didn't, they didn't use fake names. Like no, they, they and that was interesting. Um, because we also got to have a context to that time. There weren't video, like there weren't, like the cameras weren't like, well, they sprayed them. They spray painted uh, the cameras. It's true, but yeah. they wouldn't have been, it would have been cameras that were probably very difficult to like get information off. Mm. Like, um, that would, that would have to be very early in the electronic security surveillance camera time right. in the early 1970s. And, um, the fact is it's like they, like, you know, they, they, lack some you know they're not professional bank robbers nor do they have to be um that comes back to they went for the realism or anything but and i wouldn't like you i probably would sit in the middle i wouldn't call them incompetent but i wouldn't call them like obviously professional or anything like no no Um, well that was this is sunny's first bank robbery and we know that sal who in real life was about 18. I think he, the actor who plays him is about 20 years older than that in mm-hmm. here. But the insinuation is that he's already been to prison. And he's like, I can't go back, I can't go back. So neither of them are masterminds. They're not criminal masterminds. No. So and they're, fair they're afraid of going back to prison. Yeah. Like, they're, like they're legitimately afraid of that idea. Um, I don't think they're rational, like very rational people. No. Um, I think in those earlier bits, yeah... Sonny is using his intellect, his contextual intellect, 
because he did work in a bank and he knows those mm. things. That's that's using contextual intellect, but you know, when it gets to the latter parts, you know how they they're going to get away. Like, there's not a lot of mm. uh, rational thought in that. It is, no. It's incredibly, like you said, at, at best, it's incredibly optimistic. Um, and I I think they're desperate. And, and I do, I, and the situation they're in uh, comes out of desperation as well. And and even further, when they when they're like well, they're, crap, we can't get out of here. The reality of the situation is after the the moment that the detective, uh, the um, I'm gonna try and uh, I'm gonna get his name up now. The oh, uh, the the sergeant that's talking to them. The sergeant from the moment the sergeant contacts them. That is goes, Sergeant Eugene. Mor- Mor- uh, Morietti. Mor- Morietti, played yeah, by Morietti. Charles Durning. He's so good in this. He film. is great. When yeah. Moriarty first contacts Sonny in the bank and he's sitting across the street. Yeah. Like, very clear, doing like, that's the big reveal, like the police are already on to them. Yeah. Um, you can tell, like, that's the moment where they've passed the point of no return. And Sonny is at least aware of that. You know, he knows that he's on federal charges. He knows there's no genuine way out of... of and that's where, I mean, at the end of the day, that's when there really are fish out of waters, you know. that From the moment they walk in the bank, it's like not just the kid leaving, they get to the vault and there's nothing in the vault because mm, they've yeah. timed it wrong. And, yeah. and it ends up being, you know, this big standoff in which really at no real given point in time past the first interactions does Sonny or Sal ever present a threat to the people that they're keeping hostage. Um, well, yeah, that, that we we as an audience know they're not going to hurt them. They don't want to hurt mm. them, and they're pretty upfront to the the hostages as well. Who who them they themselves are very calm and very collected, and they nothing they do brings the cops forward. We don't really know no, what brought the cops were, other than maybe the fire. And they do serve as, as sort of a catalyst for society too, because there are moments in time where they are actually also quite anti-authoritarian when. When Morietti is like uh, gesturing to one of them to just stay outside, she's already yeah. outside, and she's like, "No, I'm going back inside to look after she because she doesn't feel a in danger, and b she's looking after people, and c yeah. she's probably quite against the police and quite against the army because the fact of the matter is, uh, a lot of these people, and this is what this is one of the amazing things about early '70s sort of cinema or that sort of time in society were quite anti-authoritarian because. A lot of those people lost lives or lost people, and I mean, like Sonny is a Vietnam veteran. Like he mm. he did go to Vietnam, so a lot of them are very anti-authoritarian people. Which I want to quickly say, I actually thought he was lying about that and his name, Sonny. And then the thing that clued me is when he's showing um, one of the hostages, sort of like that. It's not a salute, but like the the how trick. To, how to, yeah, do uh, present your arms. Yeah, yeah, with the gun and like showing her how to specifically do. It. I was like, oh wow, that for me that was the tick of oh he actually did serve. Yeah. I thought he was lying to that point. So it's it's, <laughs> it's a really interesting sort of um, way to like the way the film's paced is is incredible and combines tension in the latter parts and the earlier parts with really fleshing out. Um, the protagonist of, of the piece and particularly the the two characters that by the end we're like the rest of the public we don't actually want to see anything bad happen to them no well really... you're, you're questioning at the end not only as someone i didn't know the real story so i was like do they a get away and b do i actually want to see them get away i mean we take something like um spike lee's inside man 
um, which is a is another film. You know, it's got Denzel Washington, Clive Owen, and 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 takes place over the course of of a bank robbery, also a heist and bank robbery situation, in which you don't really ever empathize with with Owen's character who's who's conducting the bank robbery and you're not really meant to um whereas with these guys because from the get-go you know like apart from a couple of of pockets of when a rebellion or, or awkward moments which led to them sort of overreact and have to raise their voice they never present a threat to the people inside with them right. um after they've grounded their position and everyone who's being held quote-unquote hostage knows that they're not in any immediate danger it becomes incredibly normalized well Um, even from the beginning like i i made a point of saying like how funny the first act of the film is because of the back and forth and the fact that you know they haven't even gotten the vault open yet and one of them is yelling at sunny for language because there's kids in there like that happens very early on before you would even say they're sort of on the same team um, so you're right. It's interesting how they do become a bit of a unit, and and you know when when she's her hand is grabbed and he's like, no, come out, you're already out. And she's like, no, I'm going back in because they are a family, and that in a weird twisted way includes Sonny and Sal hmm. in that family. Very intriguing, isn't it? Yeah. So I, I like that little tight knit family they got there. So I want to talk a bit about Leon, who specifically is based on Elizabeth Eden. Um, who is a trans woman and that this whole situation came out. Um, it's like we were saying earlier, it's it's shocking that this was explored in such a way that was sensitive and, and in such a forefront way with, with a huge star like Al Pacino, who was you know part of The Godfather. Yeah, and LeMay, too. I and LeMay, yeah. I mean, at this point, he has had you know multiple successes with Serpico and, and 12, and 12, Angry, 12 Men, Angry Men, yeah. obviously, and... and probably countless others that we're, we're just not getting off the top of our head. I mean, I, and so it's, it's fascinating. He was quite, I mean, it's the, a very similar thing in, um, you know, when he does death trap and uh, five or six years from now after you know, dog days, 83, so maybe eight or nine years, um, explores a little bit of it in that too. But it's like you said, it's incredibly bold and, and progressive and, and quite even in, in 1975 uh, such a divisive issue and it was really interesting one thing on that cinema tile video that he does talk about is this is one of the benefits of having uh, you know a character like Pacino at the head of of the creative you know the actorial sh- ship as you say because people started to take it a lot more seriously or they would be open to taking it more seriously because there's such a big name associated with it um, and that's a pretty consistent, true, you know, the film like this might've been one of the first times that act, you know, I mean, just what, just under two months ago, we did Supernova where, right. you know, the, you know, obviously, and of course, LGBTQ cinema has become, you know, has gone a long way since 1975, but uh, even now it, it's like everything, whenever you you tackle a quote-unquote controversial topic Mm. having star power behind it immediately puts people more uh open to the i mean we talked about brokeback mountain in the first half well brokeback mountain in the first half of the show at gyllenhaal and and heath ledger and that the even at the time when that film came out in 2007 there was still a counter movement there was still controversy behind that film Mm. um so to have this in 1975 30 two years beforehand that's crazy 
Yeah, it it is shocking, and it, it, like I said, it was a pleasant surprise mm. because I certainly wasn't seeing it coming. And like I said, it's it's not the fault. This is definitely an LGBTQ film, yeah. or you would consider it in that realm of film. Absolutely. But it's also when you hear Dog Day Afternoon, it's not the first thing you think of. You think of like the rising hostage situation. You think of Albert. I'm still trying to work out what the title means, to be honest. I don't... Oh, I think it's just a phrase, like Breaking Bad. It's just a phrase of mm. an afternoon that's gone so awry and so wrong. I think that's sort of what it's referring to. I, I, it might be something more specifically. Maybe there was a dog walking in the on the streets in the afternoon. Yeah, and it's um, like even yeah. another thing we pick, the whole use of the only song that's non-diegetic that moves into being diegetic is that Elton John song. Yeah, that was um, tying into the fact that he was coming out at, in the same year. It's pretty. It's very smart. Very smart. It's very smart. And what I love about that opening scene as well is it almost feels like a documentary. Just like those little establishing shots of mm-hmm. like the construction workers working, the mum picking her kids up from school, um, all of these just like normal things where it's a sign of life just playing out as is. And it goes back to that theme I mentioned where once the robbery starts, Manhattan hits the pause button. That life stops because everyone's watching this thing either mm. on TV or in person on the street. Absolutely. And uh, and then that leads perfectly into one, to Sonny's uh, I mean, heroism, I guess, or one, the icon he is. One thing I really like about this film, and particularly Lume as a filmmaker here, is, is there's roughly 20 years between 12 Angry Men, I think, you know, and... Um, and Dog Day. Um, oh, it's closer to 20 years. Yeah, I said roughly 20. Oh, I thought you said 12. Sorry. Sorry. Roughly my, 20, my apologies. Um, roughly 20 years between the two. And of course, you know, it's in the title. There's 12 angry men. Um, mm. Because at the time, um, it was probably very likely that only men were allowed on jury committees in which that time, you know, that time took right. place. So to show this social and cultural evolution in his own work and his willingness to explore these sort of issues or, or or just progress and grow as a person and a filmmaker with the time that says a lot about Lume's character and how he never like he he obviously clearly puts the preference on telling a good story or telling a story that needs to be told over you know um personal outlooks or, or social societal right. pressures or and expectations his own, his own political bias perhaps absolutely yeah. although i will i will say that neither um 12 agreement all this film were written by him and i know obviously one's based on real life 12 agreements i think based on a play so yeah, of course um, it's the willing it's, it's, it's more, the willingness to direct and, exactly so yeah. his willingness to work on that project yeah and have no hesitancy for it right. and that speaks even to pacino's character too yeah because you know for him He's like, you know, you know, obviously based off, you know, what we were watching that um behind the, sort that behind the scenes of how or like modes of construction. He had just come off part two for Godfather. He was tired. Like he he and the only thing that drew him in to this project was reading the script, in mm-hmm. which he was like, I need to play this character, and th- yeah. that's that moment where he puts once again, for him it's work. He knows when there's a piece of art worth worth making, so he then actively, you know chose to pursue it which for someone like him who is in a relatively early part of his career too you know he's only in the in the first five or six years of his screen career at this point in time it was still a probably a calculated risk that could have gone horribly wrong 
had specifically to portray a gay man you're saying or well if it was written poorly or it was written um controversially right. um absolutely i okay. think um you know at that point in time society hadn't quite you know it was still it was still a relatively divisive and and controversial issue at the time and um they wanted to depict them as real people not caricatures mm. and um the fact that, that all aspects of this production were handled so tactfully and correctly has led to the film becoming more timeless and with you know time you know yeah. becoming more long standing the fact that i can watch this film now and not not really see a mo a particular moment where i'm like oh that's probably not aged very well right it it does hold up incredibly well and yeah. that's that's a testament yeah. to the director the performances and the writing yeah no exactly there is one scene however that I don't think holds up as well. And I told you this earlier. So there is one scene that I would cut. And I know there's a story about how they sort of tried to trim the film down and then they actually re-added those scenes back just so that the um the writing of the will scene didn't feel too dragging, that the pace actually fit. I know all of that. But there is one scene that I think takes away from the pace, takes away from the building tension, as I've called it, with the whole situation and how it just builds and builds and builds. I think the scene when we initially... It's the first time we actually cut away from the action is when we see Sonny's parents, or specifically, I think it's his mum, reacting to him being on TV and reacting to the news. I think it's just a jarring, frankly unnecessary scene because first off, we see her later in the film anyway arriving, so we don't need that context. Mm -hmm. And when we cut away to like you know Angie's introduction or Leon's introduction, those feel more natural. Because they've been referenced one way or another from the character or the position, like, oh, we're gonna go get his wife. Cuts to this is where we meet Angie. Like those makes. Whereas the mother, the mother comes out of nowhere, and I didn't learn anything from that scene. It just kind of halted, just for a brief minute. It's a very minor complaint. It's like literally sixty seconds on that scene. Yeah, I think the only thing it gets out of it is it's the FBI agent trying to manipulate him into a radical response or to sort of just push him a little bit further off kilter but what in that scene i think it's yeah, it's psychological warfare I no think. but I'm, I'm referring to the scene when they're just reacting the mum's reacting to the tv oh that scene that's oh, all yeah. i'm talking about yeah yeah i guess you gotta introduce um, yeah. yeah i just it even if they just did it in a different way where it makes sense that we cut to that moment it's very fair I, yeah, I if just, you can pick like, only uh, one scene out of a two-hour film, that's pretty good. No, it's very great. And it's 60 seconds on, and I think... I honestly think that was the first thing that was axed in Sidley Lament's, uh like, super quick cut. That, of course, he put those scenes back in, but I think this would have been the one that maybe maybe we didn't need it. Fair. It just halted the film, just that little extra bit. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? Um, I want to quickly mention... Well, there's two things, actually. Yeah, the Not thing one, that, but the, two. Well, the, the trivia fact I was going to talk about that's way too spoilery to talk about at the, yeah. at the start of the episode is this full circle moment. We've talked about full circle. We talked about The Godfather being somewhat an inspiration for the robbery itself. And yeah, of, of course. And, of course, Al Pacino playing that role. Um, I want to take a full circle on the other side. A bit of a Venn diagram, if you will. The second circle... <laughs> The circle on the right of the Venn diagram. What are we signs? Like... Yeah, if you're not driving your car right now, just just draw it on a piece of paper what I'm describing. Um, <laughs> but, um, of course, John Watowitz, uh, again, we don't know if that's the pronunciation or not, uh, he ended up serving six, year, uh, six years of a 20-year sentence in prison for what happened here or the um, the robbery that he attempted. That's really not too bad. It No, he did really well. I think he did have some 
Like, he went to go back in for six months or something years later for probation reasons or whatever. Um, But at the end of that six-year sentence, he was finally given the money um, in in order to buy the rights to his story. He was given 7,500 USD, which, of course, due to, um, with inflation, is about 45,000 USD now, which is probably over 50 grand Australian. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, a decent amount of money, a lot in the, for being your story's being bought by Hollywood. Mm. That's For committing a crime. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which they might have had to go through some loopholes just to even make that happen. Yeah. Uh, but the fun fact is that out of the 750000 USD he earned, he used two and a half of that to pay for Elizabeth Eden's operation. Which of course was the whole reason he was robbing that bank yeah. in the first place. That is some... He's got, a bit of, he's got a bit for the honeymoon. That Yeah, that is some full circle craziness. Um, that, of course, if I said it at the start of the episode, that would spoil the fact that, A, that uh, Sal, not Sal, Sal definitely doesn't live. He gets shot in the face. Uh, that Sonny lives. Uh, and the whole LGBT angle to this film, which I thought was an absolute surprise. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to spoil that for anyone who hasn't seen Dog Day Afternoon. No yet, drama. Unless you're listening to this podcast, which we've kind of spoiled it. And the last thing I want to mention before our highlight scenes, um, I should have mentioned it earlier when you were talking about sort of the introduction into the bank when they first walk in um, and about like the floaty camera and stuff. I actually was really impressed with how the camera was used in the very beginning of the bank because it does something that we always forget it needs to do in a film like this that takes place in one location is it actually shows us the location. There's Mm -hmm. so many panning shots, tracking shots from the door to the manager's desk, all these little camera tricks to show us without being too obvious, oh, this is the layout of the bank. This is where the open space is. This is the desk. This girl is hiding behind this desk near this window. Mm-hmm. Here's the back. You're right. Where's the toilet? The back door that they try to break in later. They Very subtly, they show all of those rooms and, and track and pan so that you see the relationship. Absolutely, yeah. And um, it just helps with like... Uh, yeah, every there's with every scene that involves something happening mm. they explore the space in a scene prior so we yeah. we don't feel like oh something's happening like he goes and puts stuff with the manager on the back door yeah so when we see them scaling the building at the back door or we, we hear something and we know he's like i hear something and he goes yeah. we know where he's going like it yeah. helps like you said it, we we see very subtly the whole space and then we explore the space throughout the film yeah i, I just thought it was very clever and they did it right at the beginning mm-hmm. the majority i mean the, going into the back was like maybe a little bit further in act 1 but still early enough to set up and then knock down that thread of them scaling the roof so or the building rather so yeah so i have one thing before we jump into highlight oh, scenes okay this is rare for me to be the one to be i have more things to say <laughs> um, the relationship between Leon and Sonny, right? Okay. Um, Leon, in multiple dialogue exchanges, is quite afraid of Sonny um, with his sort of explanations of, of Sonny's character and almost his a, sort of obsessive behaviour at times, right? And, mm. um, that sort of... So it's intri- and it kind of ties into your fact that he pays for the, the surgery six, seven years after the fact... It's, I guess it's just sort of intriguing. And of course, Leon actually goes on to kind of betray Sonny in um, their phone exchange. Right, with, because with the police listening in, in on, on the whole call. Right. Um, in which they kind of have a form of, some form of toxic or verbally abusive or slightly what at least at times feels like it's, it's 
expressed, at least by Leon, a, a concern for his own safety, mm. which I find really interesting, obviously, now given especially the out-of-film context and even in the film, it's intriguing to me because his behaviour is is erratic at times, Sonny, and particularly when it comes to, to Leon, it's like the whole... Um, methodology behind him robbing a bank just for this uh, for this operation, mm. you know, rather than you know saving up and, and and doing it like that way. And I guess to me, it's it's really interesting that after he came out of prison, then he like paid for the surgery and stuff. Where their sort of relationship, where the realism stopped with their relationship in real life, and where the cinematic relationship between you know the characters of Leon and Sonny begin, because. Mm. When I'm watching it, although it's, you know, like we were talking about how progressive their relationship is. If we're just talking about their relationship as two people. um, Sounds abusive. It does sound a little abusive. The the way they exchange, the way Leon talks to the police about, the way Sonny acts and how he's been acting and how erratic he can be and forceful he can be. And then we hear him on the phone and he's actually not really listening to Leon at all. And Mm. Leon's very clearly quite a... Uh, sh- shook by him, by his presence, by his persistence, and to, to the point of irrationality at times. So, just... well, there's almost conflicting facts where you have between Angie and between Leon of oh, he would never do anything like this, but then he has a gun to my head, you mm-hmm. know, leading up to today. So there's like conflicting thoughts about there. Characters, which I don't think, I don't think it's a plot issue at all. No, it's not I, a plot issue. It's... I think it's just people trying to protect the people they love, but then they're being reminded of the horrible things they have done leading up to this moment. Mm. Um, and I think it's, I think it's consistent for Sonny, who, you know, was in over his head. Oh, we're gonna get a, we're gonna get a jet, and we're gonna get out of here, we're gonna be fine. As, and then comparing that to his relationship with Leon, where oh well, we're gonna get this operation, and and I'm gonna rob a bank, and we're gonna do it that way, and we're gonna do it. You know, in the next week. Yeah. You know, I'm going to get the money that way. Like, I, it, it makes I sense mean, those to me. Scene, those sort of scenes definitely highlight the fact that, uh, you know, we're almost asked to question, like, we've now spent the last hour or so warming to the character of Sonny, and, mm. and we almost need that reminder that he's not... We still need to see him as a, as a threat to some extent, or we we almost... Uh, Lume, it feels like, or, or you know, like the story is trying to indicate to us that maybe we, we should actually still be reminded that he is breaking the law. What he has, do- what he has technically done is wrong. Right. And he has put people at risk, although we now know, like we know looking in, that, you know, the women, of, you know, the people that are left don't feel anymore at risk of, of you know, being in harm's way. And the only time they feel at risk again is actually when they're in the car on the way to the airport because they don't know really how that scene's going yeah, to because unfold. they have guns on them outside the car. Yeah. And and I would, to your point, like, they do feel, you know, safe with Sonny and Sal, but they're still, you're right, they're still doing really bad things. They're still robbing a bank. They're still causing all this mayhem. And it, it's great when um, the, the manager is he's having that reaction and he's like, oh, I'm not going. I'm staying here. And he's like, I, like, I really, I wish you didn't come today. Like, I really wish you weren't here. Like, he's being leg- honest to his face. Like, you've still ruined my day and possibly my week, possibly my month. Um, even though we have this weird relationship going on mm-hmm. where I'm your hostage, but you're still nice to me, and we're acting kind to each other in this moment. But then he says that, and he's like, I still wish I never had to meet you. 
So I think that the, the complexity there is is it's interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, highlight scene time, baby. Cool. Baby, let's go. Um, my highlight scene, very specifically, is the I think it's a collection of shots. I think they sort of melt together a little bit. Is when Sonny first steps out to the streets and he's having that conversation with the sergeant. Yeah, of course. And he's looking from left to right, and the camera's panning between all the cops and the media people that are scattered from the rooftops through the streets and. Just that pan across is like, wow. In terms of, we joked about it, like, not much more room than there was in 12 Angry Men, but there's still so much production value here, even with, like, the helicopters hovering over and um, the amount of people on the street physically mm-hmm. there, the amount of extras. Um, it was really daunting, and they're technically all aiming their guns down the barrel of the lens right at you, and it's like, this is cool. I really like this shot. Nice. So that's my highlight scene. I might have to say probably it'd have to be the phone exchange between Leon and mm. um, Sonny. It's a really good scene. Um, there's a lot of amazing sort of shots and coverage of that scene um, playing out, particularly on, on Leon's end, where mm. we really get to see, yeah, that sort of character betrayal. And and that helps us in one vein build, you know, empathy, uh, build sympathy towards Sonny, but at the same time, you know, we hear in Leon's voice a, a fearful person, and and even we even hear firsthand how Sonny is on that phone conversation. He's quite forceful, and he's he's mm. actually maybe not the healthiest relationship for him. Um, so it it is an interesting dissection of a lot of characters, and mm. you know, it is a big turning point for the characters. The power does start to shift away from Sonny at that point. Yeah. And starts Losing he starts to he starts to lose that control that he has held for probably an hour of the film. Yeah. It's runtime at this point. Yeah. So well, in the world, maybe like six hours. Six seven point. hours. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. yeah. So Dog Day Afternoon is currently out on wide release. I don't know if it's on any streaming platforms. It is most certainly not. Oh, okay. And I have Netflix, Stan, Disney Prime, Binge, SBS on demand. It's on none of them. So I had to rent this movie on YouTube, which I never do. So. Dog's Afternoon made me rent on DVD. my first movie on YouTube. And I'll go say, for a 420 stream, looked pretty incredible. going to say, it looks pretty incredible. 420 is... Uh, not all 420s are 420. If you've met one 420 you 480? Sorry, 480. Why don't I keep saying 420? It's because I'm Explosive. high as a kite. That's yeah. why. No. Um, 480. You're correct. Uh, 480p. Not all 480 Standard p's definition. are 480p. But it looked great. No worries. Well, speaking of streaming platforms, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week, Jake? Uh, it's a pretty chill week. Um, Disney Plus is killing it this month. Obviously, they dropped Raya and the Last Dragon, I think, last week, which is now free for subscribers. Um, they finally started airing Loki, which I haven't seen yet, but I'll start watching it. And um, I think that was last Wednesday, mm-hmm. the first episode came out. And yeah. later this week, Luca, which is the latest Disney Pixar film. I swear to God, they're just pumping these out at this point. Luca. Um, Luca, which sees an unlikely friendship grow between a human being and a sea monster disguised as a human in the Italian Riviera. Is it Riviera? Uh, Riv- yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's correct. It looks like there should be more letters, but that works. Um, this is like Pixar's third film in like... For 14 months, 15 months. They are killing it. And I'm pretty sure it's free for subscribers immediately. I'm telling you, Disney Plus, they're putting the wrong films on premium. They should, if they, they should have put Mulan for free. They should have put, um, you know, Raya and the Last Dragon. Uh, maybe even Koala, maybe for free. 
and then these Pixar films charge for those. Yeah. But they are going to charge for Black Widow, which is actually like less than a month away. So um, mm. I think that's a smart thing. You got to charge for the Marvel yeah. films. I've been enjoying Disney Plus. Yeah, it's good. You, I like. You've the been enjoying that... my Disney Plus. You have. Yes. <laughs> you wait. I'm coming for your Prime next. Oh no! Don't do it. Um, but anyway, that's Disney Plus. They're killing it over on Prime. You can watch Almost Famous, Whiplash, The Wolf of Wall Street, and your favorite Zeke, The Ugly Truth, coming later this week for free. Uh, coming to binge this week is Kevin Smith's 90s film Clerks, which I really like. And also coming to binge and Netflix is Tenet. So if you've skipped out on Tenet in the last year, you can finally watch it. We don't really recommend it, do we? No, no. Can't say, can't say I do. Not, not quite. But it's free. Yeah, exactly. If you've got Netflix, you can watch that. You can also watch Fatherhood, which is inspired by a true story, not unlike Dog, uh, Dog Daft. I almost said Dog Tooth. <laughs> that is not based on a true story, thank God. Um, and it sees Kevin Hart play a single father who has to bring up his baby girl after the unexpected death of his wife. Um, so that's a new film that's coming out. And coming to cinemas finally, if you want to go to Hoyts this week, you can catch early screenings of both The Hitman's Wife's Bodyguard, which of course is a sequel, mm-hmm. uh, and for musical fans, In the Heights, which I think is screening right now, so you can jump on that. And if you want to go to Luna instead this week, you can watch My Zoe, which sees Julie Delphi star and direct in the story of Isabella, a single mother, raising a daughter who must take matters into her own hands after tragedy strikes. Of course, Julie Delphi is the main actress in the Before Trilogy, and I think she's brilliant, and I want to see her direct and star in this movie. So I'm keen Very keen. for My Zoe. But we're not watching any of those films, are we, Z? No, we're moving into the 1960s. <laughs> I did it once. I did it myself. For the countdown <laughs> through the decades retrospective. Oh, Jake, who were the two films up for grabs and what are we watching? So uh, this week, or I should say next week, uh, Rosemary's Baby lost the vote. It was actually pretty decisive, 20 to 11. So yes. uh, people, people knew what they wanted out of that yeah. one. And, uh, of course, the film that did win our 60s film from 1962 is To Kill a Mockingbird. Ladies and gentlemen, Gregory Peck. The world never seems as fresh and wonderful, as comforting and terrifying, as good and evil, as it does when seen through the eyes of a child. For a writer to capture that feeling is remarkable. And perhaps that is why one book in the last few years has been so warmly embraced by tens of millions of people. Kill a Mockingbird, winner of the Pulitzer Prize and just about every other award a book can win. And now, happily, To Kill a Mockingbird becomes a motion picture and its memorable characters come vividly alive. That Scout, some people call her Jean Louise Finch, but she insists on Scout, and that's her brother, Jim. Just a boy until the day he learns there is evil in the world. And Atticus Finch, the father, whose devotion to justice places him and his children in jeopardy. I've been appointed to defend Tom Robinson. Now that he's been charged, that's what I intend to do. You taking his to... excuse me, Mr. Ewell. In the Depression era, Articus Finch, a lawyer, sets out to defend a black man accused of raping a white woman. Meanwhile, his children, Scout and Jem, spy on their reclusive neighbor. So I've, I saw this last year. I can't remember when exactly. Oh, really? Yeah, and I'm going to say it. I was not as keen on it as I thought I would be, but we would discuss that. Yeah, look, to enough. be honest, they were both on my I haven't watched list, so either mm. or would have been fine for me. Right. I have them both on DVD, so I was at this point I was like, 
I was like, I literally don't mind which one wins. Right. Well, um, that was last week too, if any, any hole. Yeah, exactly. Any hole? Any and Dog Day hole. Afternoon. Any yeah. hole. Any yeah. hole. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. So, yeah, I, I'm totally open to exploring both of these films. Um, I feel like they're both going to be films that I, I might even end up watching both during the week. I recommend you do. I'm really curious to see what, what you think of Rosemary's um, Baby. Because I've... One thing I would love to start to do maybe next year when we do this is really push to only watch stuff from the decade that we're doing. Yeah, um, I gave up on that real quick, if you recall. It's tough. <laughs> it's t- the thing is, it's like like I said, it comes back to the first part of the show we're talking about watching context. And so it's sometimes it's you just want to watch something you know that is just going to just go. It's the popcorn effect, mm. you know, something that has no substance or... Or any sort of thought-provoking pro Because you watch this film and it's like, yeah, we ended up talking about it for like 25, 30 minutes, but you can't do that with every film. Right. We'll be here all night. I think we got closer to an hour. That's crazy. I don't know. That's we, crazy. We like this Well, <laughs> until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with To Kill a Mockingbird.